Good evening. It's my great pleasure to welcome you here this evening to the launch, uh, the Victorian launch. We should say the Australian launch. One happened to be in Sydney, but we won't talk about that, of the latest La Trobe University Press book uh, by Hugh White, who almost feels like is an in-house author of La Trobe University Press, uh, which, is an associate, which is a collaboration between La Trobe and, and Black Inc. Um, my name is Nick Bisley, uh, and I'm the head of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University and erstwhile of the La Trobe Asia uh, parish. Um, to begin, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the lands on which we are gathered, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, uh, and pay my respects and respects on behalf of the university uh, to elders past, present and emerging. Uh, I have two very simple tasks tonight. One is to introduce uh, the two speakers, both of whom I'm fairly certain you, are no, you know their biographies at least as well as I do, but I'll, I'll say a few very brief things about them. Uh, and then to draw your attention to two other events. The first um, is that immediately when uh, this evening's discussion and Q&A concludes, um, Hugh will be signing the book in the foyer and also available in the foyer is the latest edition of Australian Foreign Affairs, another publication um, from Black Ink, uh, in which both of the uh, speakers this evening have chapters, uh, not chapters, papers, uh, so you can kind of get a, a product placement times two or three. Um, and the final part of my... Uh, first bit of my task uh, is to promote the next event from Latrobe Asia, which uh, is the launch of the, Latrobe, the latest edition of the Latrobe Asia Brief, which is on Australia-China relations, finding the elusive balance. Copies are available uh, in the foyer, uh, and that event is here on the 30th of July at 6 p.m. Um, as an author of one of the chapters in the brief, um, I will also be speaking, so I have a vested interest in encouraging you to come along, uh, and it, it would be a personal matter of pride if we could have more people here than Hugh is able to attract, but I suspect that's rather difficult. Um, as I said, the, the two speakers this evening probably need very little introduction, so I'll do just that. Um, Hugh White, uh, Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at the ANU, which I find is a slightly, doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but I'll get used to it. Um, prior, to his, uh, uh, he, prior to that, he was the head of the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at uh, ANU, before that, he was the inaugural director of ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, um, 15 years ago it was established, yes. um, and was, I think, a rather different place then than it is now. Uh, and Hugh is in conversation about his book and the broader issues it raises with Ewan Graham. Ewan is, of course, uh, the director of La Trobe Asia. He joined us here at La Trobe uh, late last year. From uh, We rescued him from the Lowy Institute, not just Lowy Institute, but also from a life, from a life in Sydney, uh, which, is, which is also a, a, a double redemption in some respects. Uh, prior, prior to being at Lowy, he was in Singapore at the RSIS school uh, at Nanyang Technological University, and prior to that um, was, at the, was served in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office um, of the British government. Uh, uh, Hugh and Ewan will be in conversation for about half of the time we've got allotted, and then there'll be Q&A. Um, there'll be microphones roving, so when we get to that, the lights will come up a little bit, but try to catch uh, the eye of you. And, um, and I will say in advance, in the Q&A, make sure the questions are questions, short, sharp, like my introduction. Ewan, <laughs> take it away. Thank you very much, Nick. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, Hugh. Um, it's an honour and, and a real pleasure to have you hosted here in, uh, uh, in Melbourne for the launch of, uh, of your uh, new book, which I, I have brought here uh, as a well-thumbed-through prop. Um, having been absorbed in, in its contents um, for a lot of the last month. Congratulations. It's a great piece of work. It's an important book, a timely uh, book, and I think uh, no better uh, testament to uh, your popularity and prominence in the debate that you've managed to uh, fill out the House here uh, and in competition with the Lowy Institute, who happen yes. to be uh, <laughs> launching their own Asian Power Index uh, in this city, which is not an unfriendly act. Uh, it was just simply a scheduling uh, conflict. But uh, uh, on a, um, a midwinter, rainy Melbourne evening to boot, Hugh, I think that, uh, that speaks uh, volumes for itself. Um, the issues are weighty. The time is limited. Um, so I suggest we, we get straight to it. I'd, the book has been out for not too long now. Um, I maybe enough of a sense to get some of the initial reactions from, from Australia. Uh, there have been a, a number of reviews out already. It's got a, a great deal of, uh, of press. Um, I wondered, partly with my Latrobe Asia hat on here, if you had a sense yet of what the international reaction is. Um, and I'll stretch the, the uh, definition of Asia to include the United States in this. Uh, whether you have a sense yet of where it's landed, uh, whether it's been, uh, how it's been received uh, in the, the big 
major power um, countries that you, your, your uh, premise is really based on, the US-China relationship, uh, as well as some of um, our neighboring Asian countries. Well, uh, thanks very much, Ewan, and I should start by saying thanks to Nick, thanks to Latrobe, thanks to you for taking part in this event, and I should also take advantage here in Melbourne to say thanks to the Black Ink team who, with Latrobe University Press, made this happen, and particularly Chris Fike, who is uh, the best editor in Australia. If anyone's ever thinking of writing a book, go to Chris. And uh, he probably won't thank me for saying that, but it's just uh, it's, um, the book wouldn't be here were it not for him, and I really appreciate what he and his team uh, have done. Yeah, look, it's a really interesting question, Ewan, because the book is, of course, very much focused on an Australian audience. It does have, you know, Australia in the title, and I very much wrote it to stimulate the debate uh, in Australia. But, of course, it, there isn't a very strong international dimension from it because the whole argument um, as, uh, comes, comes from a proposition about Australia's international setting. Uh, so, so far, I think I can say that I can give some definite data points. In China, the Global Times has described it as a typical example of the China threat thesis. And considering I'm usually regarded as a panda hugger, I, re I greeted that with some relief and gratitude. Um, uh, in Singapore, it's been greeted with great interest. And you know Singapore well, of course, you and so perhaps wouldn't be surprised by that, but they do think a lot about defence in Singapore. Uh, their strategic situation is very different from ours, but it, um, uh, I had a piece in the Straits Times a couple of days ago and I've had quite a strong response to that, so that's, uh, that's of interest. And you do use Singapore as a comparison? I do, yes, I, 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 I do, um, and that got a bit of attention too. Um, uh, and so far, the response from the United States is very interesting. Um, uh, shock, I think, would be the best word. That is, really? You in Australia are that worried about our durability in Asia that you're starting to think these are very deep thoughts? So one of the, I should say, subordinate objectives I had in writing the book, as I say, it was very much written for an Australian audience, but I did want to find another way of trying to communicate to American friends that they don't yet understand just how serious things look from this side of the Pacific. And uh, so I've had at least the beginnings of that kind of response from the United States. Closer to home, also in the book, um, when you're framing Australia's threat environment and potential threat assessments, uh, you mention not just China, but also a number of other countries too. Um, Indonesia is flagged both as a potential adversary and as a potential partner. Um, India is there too, and you also um, briefly reference Japan. So with those countries also in mind, perhaps there might be some more surprise in an Australian readership, which generally regards those countries as close and on friendly terms. Perhaps you could just explain to us a little bit more about how you, why you identify those countries as also being important in, in a potential threat assessment and how those, those threats could potentially unfold. Yes, no, really important question, because right at the heart of the book is an argument about the way in which Australia assesses its future strategic risk and the measures we might take to ameliorate that. And one of the great challenges of defence policy is that we can't make good defence policy today on the basis of the way in which we see potential threats today. Because the decisions we make about defence policy today, the decisions we make in particular about the kinds of capabilities we build, don't deliver any outputs for 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years. And so the choices we make today have to be based on assessments we must make, difficult though it is to do it, about the kinds of strategic threats we might face decades into the future. And for that reason, at the risk of being a little bit pedantic, I don't talk about threats, I talk about risks, that we, by which I mean the, the risk is a potential for a future threat to emerge. Now, to start with China, um, it's, a, it's a subtle but to me very important point that I, I don't see China today threatening Australia. Um, what I do see is that China's rise and the challenges posing to American leadership in Asia, to America's position in Asia, threatens the international system, that is, threatens the, or undermines the way in which Asia has worked, which has made us so secure and has made it so easy for us to be relatively complacent about our defence, and raises our, fut our future strategic risks, raises the potential for that to happen in the future. Now, whether that arises from China depends primarily on how China evolves. And we don't know much about the China of 30 years from now. It's perfectly possible that even if I'm right that China ends up as the primary power in East Asia, as a predominant power in East Asia, 
it will turn out to be a kind of a not too bad kind of dominant power that doesn't throw its weight around too much and which we find relatively easy to live with. It might, on the other hand, turn out to be a highly assertive, highly interventionist and even potentially aggressive great power with which we'd feel very uncomfortable. Now, if the first of those outcomes occurs, then we won't feel we need much in a way of armed force to manage that risk. If the second one does, we'll feel we really need it very badly. And the problem for us is we have to make the decisions about the kinds of armed forces we'll have to, in future on the basis of an unknown um, uh, judgment about China uh, decades from now. And there's no escaping that. So the point I'm making is we just have to make the best assessment we can. I try and sketch some of the issues in the book, but there's one of the many areas in the book where a lot more thinking is required. But my bottom line is I don't think we can confidently assume that a China that becomes a strong, a very strong and probably the strongest power in our region, at least in East Asia and the Western Pacific, is going to be so benign that we won't feel we need, amongst the other instruments of policy that we'll use to manage that relationship, uh, armed force. On just uh, lots of others as well, but just to uh, touch on one other very significant one, Indonesia. Indonesia is obviously looms very large for Australia because unlike the other great powers, and I'll come back to that phrase in a minute, um, it's right next door to us. And, um, and that makes Indonesia both um, a very important potential adversary and a very important potential ally. Its proximity makes it very important in both respects. But what's more important still is that as Indonesia's economy grows, as it's doing, not as fast as China's, but the respectable assessments are that Indonesia will have the fourth biggest economy in the world well before the middle of the century. Now, I don't know about anybody, I find that almost impossible to comprehend, but the arithmetic's pretty straightforward. It has the fourth biggest population. It's growing pretty steadily. And we have absolutely no idea what kind of power Indonesia will be uh, at, at that stage. Now, it's perfectly possible that in Indonesia, which is a, in itself a great power, will be a perfectly congenial neighbour. But uh, I think our, a sober, meticulous, responsible, prudent assessment of Australia's future military needs has to take account of the possibility that it won't be. Your emphasis is on um, territorial defence um, and, more specifically, continental defence, uh, including Tasmania, um, through a, uh, a, 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 a... which will reassure those in the audience here um, uh, in, in Melbourne with second homes or, uh, or other d designs. Um, and your, your strategy boiled down is one of, of maritime denial, uh, and you outline a force structure to match. I just want to ask a couple of um, subsidiary questions from that. Uh, you do touch on offshore islands and the defence of offshore islands in the Indian Ocean, because, of course, um, there is Christmas Island and, and Cocos. Uh, you seem resigned to writing these off against a major power uh, invasion. Uh, does that potentially open up Australia to a, a Falklands scenario uh, without a force projection capability? Uh, yes, it, yes, it does. I mean, let me just touch on a sort of preliminary part of that question. The, the book does focus very much on what you might call a very traditional view of defence, that is, as you say, territorial defence against direct military attack. I, I don't for a moment think that's the only security problem Australia faces. And, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a reflection that people have made that I don't talk much about cyber, a little bit, I don't talk about climate change and so on. I'm not for a moment arguing that these, that these other issues are not very significant security issues. I do argue that the old-fashioned kind of defence, territorial defence against military threat, hasn't been much of a deal in recent decades because of the particular way the, system, the national systems worked. But I think there's no reason at all for us to assume that it won't be more significant in future. And that's why, that, that's just, so to speak, what the book's about. You could write other books about those other things. Now, on the ter the, when you start thinking about how do you defend Australia, remember the big... Um, the, the big objective of the book is to answer the question, can Australia defend itself without relying on a great and powerful friend? And it seems to be an urgent question which I'm very focused on putting on the table because I don't think we can remotely assume that our great and powerful friends are going to do for us in the future what they've done in the past. And most Australians, most of the time, through most of our history, have believed that the answer is a simple no. And my point is, well, let's just really test that. We've never, I think, really asked ourselves, could we do it? We've tended just to take it for granted that we couldn't. And so I've, I've gone about, so to speak, 
and, and you, you know, sketched neatly that uh, sort of gone back to, to, to the basics and said, OK, well, let's build step by step from the ground up what an approach to defending Australia might look like. And one of the things that emerges from that is that it's a lot easier for Australia, or for that matter for other countries, to stop other countries projecting power by sea or air against us than it is for us to project power by sea and air against them. And I, quite a lot of the book is a, an argument as to why that's the case and what it means for our security. Now, the problem with defending, and that's a great asset for defending a continent, but the problem for us in defending the offshore islands is that we'd have to project power by sea and air to, 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 to them. So that, that reverses the, the, um, the balance of, of, of benefit. And in the end, I don't think they're worth the, the, the money it would cost us, the huge money it would cost us to build the maritime power projection forces required to retake them if they were taken. So it would put us in a Falkland situation. And what we do is to say, yeah, well, tough luck. Arguably what some thought Maggie Thatcher should have done with the Falklands and say, well, that was nice, but it's just not worth the effort. In the end, you've got to make tough choices about how far you're going to go, what you're going to, uh, what you're going to fight for and what you're going to let go. And I think the, I think the Indian Ocean territories are, are, are not worth what it would cost to build the capabilities required to defend them. Neatly answered. But there's a broader question here around um, territorial uh, defence, continental defence, and Australia's dependence on the sea for supply, not just for, tr for trade, but for strategic supply. And you do mention uh, f uh, fuel, the paucity of fuel um, refined and storage in Australia. It, it's a recurrent issue that comes up uh, and never seems to get addressed. Um, how long could the fortress hold out under the maritime equivalent of a siege? If Australia was subjected to a blockade uh, without a navy to protect its shipping, uh, are you actually making the country vulnerable with the force structure that you outline? Absolutely. It's a really good question. It's one of the toughest issues in the book. It's one of the ones I wrestle with uh, uh, most. And, uh, it, and it flows very much from the logic of the um, point I was making before. That is the, the, the very long-term trends in the evolution of maritime warfare, trends go all the way back to the late 19th century, mean that ships are are increasingly easy to find and sink, and therefore increasingly hard to defend. And uh, the, the good news is that means it's relatively easy to defend uh, a continent like Australia, or for that matter, anywhere else, from maritime projection, um, uh, maritime power projection, because you can find the ships and sink the ships that are doing that. And that, by the way, is what the Chinese are doing to the Americans. You know, the capacity to find and sink US aircraft carriers, for example. Now, that works in our advantage if we're trying to sink other people's ships but it works enormously to our disadvantage if we're trying to stop other people sinking ours. And so the conclusion I draw, and it's a very tough conclusion, but it's one I'm pretty sure is right, is that it's simply not possible for Australia to defend our maritime shipping. And so if, that is a, if we regard that as a requirement for Australia's defence, then the answer to this is we can't defend ourselves. I actually think, though, that in some kinds of war, in some kinds of conflict, um, uh, Australia could, if we... If we make provision to support our own armed forces adequately, which includes fuel supplies, but also supplies of spare parts and munitions and all that sort of thing. And given that Australia is inherently quite a self-sufficient place, I mean, it's not Singapore, if I can put it that way, or, or for that matter, um, you know, World War II Britain, then um, I think it's credible to argue, although, again, it's an area of the book that would need a lot more, an area of the argument that would need a lot more um, analysis. I think it's credible to think that Australia could sustain itself independently for long enough to achieve significant strategic effects. But uh, but the you know the converse of that is if if that's not right, then if we have to defend our trade, I don't I don't believe we can. Except by doing this, we can defend our trade by by deterring attacks on our trade by attacking others. Let's interrogate a little bit more about the um, force structure and also this idea of of. Uh, of dependence, um, because essentially what you're outlining is uh, a posture of strategic autonomy, even though Australia would be buying off the shelf. And I just want to um, ask you a little bit more about that, because it seems that as technology improves and gets more and more complex, we're not looking anymore about just, just a platform-based force structure. And you know this, you talk also about the sensors. But is it really credible for Australia, with its technology level, its size of population, uh, to be incredibly autonomous in a way that would really count in a conflict. 
Um, a really, really critical question. Um, and the answer is, I'm not sure. And that's why I say in the book that my answer to the question, can we defend Australia, is a qualified yes. And one of the qualifications I make is precisely that the demands, not just of buying the stuff and learning how to operate it, but being able to sustain it through operations and evolve it and so on, is, is very great. And quite a lot of the increase in defence spending that I pessimistically project will be required doesn't go to buying more stuff. It goes to building the national capacity to sustain it in operations. So I'm not sure that we can. But I think, but I'm, but I, if I can put it right, I'm not sure that we can't. We've never tried. Now, you're right, for example, as we move to the fifth generation of combat aircraft, aircraft like the Joint Strike Fighter, these are immensely complex machines. You know, it's one thing to learn how to maintain your old rotary dial telephone, Black Baker light telephone at home. You could take the back off that and see what's going on. It's not actually that complicated. But don't try maintaining your iPhone at home. Um, and the analogy is actually not, not that imprecise. These are extremely complex machines. But that, in a sense, is one of the questions I'm posing. We can defend ourselves independently if, we, if amongst other things, we can build a national capacity to keep these very complex systems operating. And it's just a matter for us to decide whether we're prepared to put the effort and the money required into making that work. It's, so one way of answering a question is to say, I'm not sure that we can't, but if we can, it's going to involve a much bigger effort than we've had before. And it's a matter, a choice for us as to whether we're prepared to do it. I want to um, now talk a little bit about the single layer defence versus the, the balanced um, force, which you're, you're crit critical of uh, as a, a sort of fixed idea, almost a lazy idea, as, as you characterise it in, in um, force structure planning uh, in the past. But the, the force structure that you out outline, Hugh, is a very specialised one for a very, very specialised high-end scenario. Having built this very expensive ADF, for conventional deterrence. I put it to you, doesn't that virtually invite an, ad an adversary to innovate ways to pressure an isolated Australia directly or indirectly through other means? And I, there are a, a number of ways that could be suggested. Blockade we've talked about, cyber attacks, but even perhaps to connect up your low-end and high-end scenarios, fomenting instability in Australia's immediate environment. If there's one way that would be obvious, cheap way to keep Australia off balance, to absorb the ADF in an open-ended scenario. Yeah. It would be to ferment that scenario, to ferment instability in a nearby country, Papua New Guinea, Timor, somewhere else, in a way that a government of the day here would feel surely compelled to respond. Uh, well, no, really important, really important question. Um, two parts to the answer. The first is I do actually, in my conception of Australia's military strategy is, as you say, very strongly focused on maximising our capacity to do what seems to me to be most important. And that setting of priorities and relentlessly building a force structure to address those priorities seems to me to be essential if we're going to be able to do this affordably in an economy our size. But I'm not quite so um, uh, sort of single-minded uh, as that uh, little description suggests because I do also acknowledge that there's one other thing which is really important to Australia and that is helping to support stability in the immediate neighbourhood. And when I come to army, which doesn't play a very big role in the um, place for, for complex analysis about the role of army, but doesn't play a very big role in the maritime denial strategy, I do put a very big emphasis on the importance of army uh, land forces as a um, as an instrument for, for contributing to broader national efforts to stabilise the immediate neighbourhood. And that's very much in response to exactly the point you make. Now, there's a whole separate argument about what, what we should be doing in the in the South Pacific, which is what's touched on in the Australian foreign affairs uh, uh, issue, which has just come out. But I, uh, I, I do think that's a very significant factor. But to turn it over, um, you know, the temptation is to... And it's a very real temptation. It's a temptation that anyone who's playing forces is very conscious of. It's a, there's a real temptation to think, look, we, there are lots of different things we might need our armed forces to be able to do. So we've got to build armed forces that can do lots of different things. And that's, I, I can, I'm very sympathetic to that temptation. But the problem is that it all, in the end, comes down to money. And the more diverse, the more different kinds of things you spread your force across, the more different tasks you spread your force across, the less of any one you can do. And what I, what I've, the methodology I adopted in this book was to say, what's the single thing which is most important for us to do? And let's put the overwhelming weight of our effort into this. And then a couple of things are slightly second order. Let's put a little bit of money into that and be very parsimonious about everything else. 
You mentioned the South Pacific. You let's let's go there. In Chapter Five, um, you write that Australia's second strategic interest is to deny any adversary access to bases in the Inner Arc. Uh, and in the Guardian this week, um, in a shorter version of the AFA piece, you wrote also that islands across the North uh, are critical to protecting. Uh, Australia from armed attack, but also in the same piece, you said that Australia should be should prepare for a Chinese base in the Pacific, and advocated a policy, at least in military sense, of stepping back. Now, aren't those two things contradictory? Um, I, I can understand why they might appear contradictory, but in fact, I think they are they perfectly exemplify the way in which Australia has to start rethinking its approach to these issues as we confront something new that is an Asian power which is stronger than any Asian power we've ever encountered before. Australia's traditional approach to preserving that interest that you, that you mentioned, that what I describe as our second sort of canonical strategic interest, um, and it is, it's worth bearing in mind, this, this, is, this, is, this was the first big idea Australians had when they started thinking about how to defend this continent back in the um, 1860s and 1870s, the idea that uh, we were secure as long as no major power had bases near us, but if a major power did have bases in those islands, then it could be used to attack us. It's a very old idea, and, it, and in 1942 it was proved right. So, you know, it's, 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 it, and I think it's still right. It's a really critical issue, but our approach to that hitherto, going again, going all the way back to late, late 19th century, has been to try and establish and preserve an exclusionary sphere of influence, just keep any potential um, adversary out, and that has traditionally meant not just keep stop them developing military bases, but minimise their economic footprint, their diplomatic footprint, their political footprint. And so when, you know, traditionally, the only things that have really mobilised Australia to take an interest in the islands of the South West Pacific is to making sure that nobody else was taking an interest. Now, that has worked moderately well, but I do think that it's going to make it, going to be much harder for us to make that exclusionary sphere of influence model work in the face of China's interest in and um, and opportunities in um, the islands of the Southwest Pacific, because it, it, China offers them, as it offers us, <coughs> unparalleled opportunities economically and so on. And I think it's just unrealistic to think that we can say to the Southwest Pacific um, or say to the Chinese, "No, you're not allowed to build a position." And now, once, of course, once China starts building. It's already started. Starts building, you know, ports and all the rest of it. Um, it is going to become more influential. It is going to be harder for us to keep it out. So I think we, rather than than, than saying we have to uh, pursue the traditional exclusionary sphere of influence model, we just have to accept that we're probably not going to be able to keep the Chinese out. That it's going to be very hard to be as confident as we have been in the past that China wouldn't acquire military bases there. And just a footnote for China, you could read other major powers as well, and therefore. What Australia has to do is to build the forces to neutralise those bases if they're established, rather than uh, uh, long-term um, uh, diplomatic efforts to prevent those circumstances arising at all. Now, that, that's the bad news. The good news is, as a result of the arguments in the book, is that I don't think it's very difficult for Australia to develop the capability to neutralise those bases if they occur. And that's one of the things... So if the jobs got harder in some ways because of the change, the shift in the distribution of wealth and power and so on, it's become easier in other ways because of the way technology and some operational innovations have given us some new military options. And that's encompassed in the book. But you're still um, dealing with the base after the fact. Yeah. Um, you, you're very critical, or quite critical, of the decision to re-establish a, an ADF um, presence in, in Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. But what if the purpose of that is not so much for forced projection, but to deny that as a basing location to China? Doesn't it surely have validity in, in those terms? Uh, w- well, um, it, yes, but it only, it only denies one admittedly rather handy harbour, big harbour, not a bad site. Um, that's why the Americans used it in 1943. But there are lots of others, and we can't build an, we can't build an army base, a navy base in every single potential navy base site in across the Southwest Pacific. And I think one of the reasons I criticise that move is that I think it does, in a sense, tempt the Chinese to match it. Um, you know, part of what's going on, not just in the Southwest Pacific, but more broadly is that China is seeking opportunities 
to demonstrate that it can do things that we, the United States and Australia and so on, would rather they didn't do. That's a very important part of what they've been doing in the South China Sea. Not the only part, but an important part. The United States has said you must not build island bases and militarise island bases in the southwest in, in South China Sea, and the Chinese have said, really? Well, yes, you stop us. And that's, you know, this is actually how power politics works. Competing um, great powers in a power politic political contest look for opportunities to show that they can do things that the other side doesn't want them to do. This, we saw a lot of this in the Cold War, and you saw a lot of it in, in all sorts of things all the way back through the 19th century, right back into the 17th century and so on. So I think by us saying to the Chinese, you must not build a military base there, and by building one of our own, we, we, we actually make it more tempting for the Chinese to say, well, we can do this. You can't stop us. Now, um, changing gears um, to something completely different, but a lot of the attention has been on your chapter on the uh, question of whether Australia should consider acquiring a nuclear deterrent of its own. Um, you reach no firm conclusion on that, uh, but say that there are circumstances uh, under which that, that could justify Australia acquiring them. Um, you also sketch out a scenario in, in reference to China on nuclear um, blackmail, which perhaps you, you can um, talk a little bit more about. Uh, but in your logic appears clear there, and you, you say, and I'm quoting, that the only clear way to avoid this appears to be to counter China's nuclear card with a nuclear threat of our own. So... By not reaching a firm conclusion, are you actually um, not following through on your own logic? Yes, no. Uh, very good, very good question. Um, uh, this, is the, the, this is the hardest chapter in the book, um, uh, and it has understandably attracted a fair amount of attention. It is in some ways off to one side from the main thrust of the argument. The, the, the main thrust of the argument in the book is about how you construct a, a a conventional defence for Australia, but it did seem to me to be uh, important to acknowledge that there is a nuclear dimension to this, and the background to it is really very simple, that uh, Australia made a decision, having thought quite seriously in different times and different ways in the 50s and 60s about acquiring nuclear weapons of its own, Australia made a very clear decision in the late 60s and early 70s when we signed the NPT that we would simply... Um, repudiate the nuclear option. And it was an absolutely correct decision to make. But it was also an easy decision to make. Because on the one hand, the arguments against Australia acquiring nuclear weapons are enormously strong. And I know them all. And I, and I support them all. But on the other hand, then, in the late 60s and early 70s, and ever since, the arguments on the other side of the scale were very weak. There seemed no good reason why Australia should possibly accept all the costs and risks and, and problems of acquiring nuclear weapons because the chance of a nuclear of Australia facing a need to, to have its own nuclear forces were very low because we could be and we were and we have been and we remain today, I suppose, very confident of US extended nuclear deterrence. Now, the, 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 the only point I'm really making in, or the underlying point I'm making in a chapter is that if I'm right to be as pessimistic as I am about the future of US strategic engagement in Asia and US strategic commitment to Australia, and again, remember, not this year or next year, but 30 or 40 years into the future, then that side of the argument is going to change. We are going to be less confident. And the question for Australia then is whether all of those issues, that, all of those very strong reasons why we should never even contemplate nuclear weapons on the one, on one hand, are they strong enough to still counterbalance the arguments on the other side, when it's likely that Australia would find itself unable to resist, without anyone else at any rate, to rely on to help us resist a nuclear threat. Now, as you say very accurately, the, the, the argument I make in the, in the chapter is not that I think Australia is likely to face, at all remotely likely to face, an actual nuclear attack. What is less unlikely is that we'd face a nuclear blackmail, that is, a situation in which you are fighting a conventional war and winning a conventional war, or at least achieving your strategic objectives in a conventional war, and the adversary, a nuclear-armed adversary, would would trump you by saying, if you'll forgive that expression, by saying, um, stop doing what you're doing, accept what we want, or we'll attack you with nuclear weapons. This is not a fanciful proposition. It's exactly what the United States did to China two or three times over Taiwan crises in the 1950s, which is why the Chinese acquired nuclear forces. Um, 
And, and it, this is what the, there's a lot of weight on the word appears in the sentence that you quoted. It appears to me that there's no sure way for a country that doesn't have the capacity to depend on another country to do the deterrence for them. There appears no sure way to, to, to counter that kind of threat except with a deterrent of your own. But when I say appears, it's because, and I do make this point in the chapter, nuclear weapons have been with us for 75 years, whatever it is, and they remain a big mystery. We don't, they're incredibly revolutionary in the way they affect the relations between states. We had a huge case study as to what those implications were in the Cold War. But the Cold War was a very specific case between a very specific set of adversaries, very specific geographical circumstances and so on, ideological circumstances. We don't know how nuclear weapons are going to function in the decades to come. And so the, the underlying the whole argument I make about nuclear weapons is a sense of uncertainty about the arguments. On the other hand, it does seem to me to be kind of intellectually cowardly not to make the best argument you can on the basis of what we do know, at least to set up the discussion. Last question before we go to the floor, and it's on the nuclear theme, but I'm going to be a bit provocative and throw back a, a proposal back at, at you on this. Um, is it also possible to envisage a, a grand bargain on the nuclear side with Australia? There are obvious deep consequences, strategic, moral about acquiring nuclear weapons, but also cost implications, and you talk about that uh, in your later chapter, and basically you cost uh, the equivalent of 3% of GDP on defence spend for the conventional option, but going up to four uh, with a nuclear option. Would it be possible for Australia just to bite bullet, as it were, uh, embrace nuclear power in a grand bargain, including civil nuclear power, civil nuclear power that would bring economic benefits to the economy, uh, would address climate change in a way that doesn't uh, come up so much in, in the book, but would obviously uh, feature for our international relations very prominently. Um, and it be able to reduce the costs if Australia were to take the bold step of cancelling those French conventional submarines, going straight um, from the beginning again, redraw the contract, ask for nuclear boats, get those, equip them with nuclear weapons, and then we do it together. <laughs> um, okay, there's a lot in that. Um, uh, I don't think that would be a good approach. Uh, the first is I don't... We, I, I think... I'm, the arguments for, for Australia building its conventional forces quickly is very strong. I don't think there's an argument for Australia to make a decision about nuclear weapons nearly that fast. So I think there's a sort of time frame thing. The second is that um, I do think that nuclear weapons are not a substitute for conventional forces. Uh, some people often think that there's a kind of a choice. You know, we don't need all this conventional stuff if we have nuclear forces. I think against a nuclear armed state, uh, that, is, that is simply uh, mistaken. Uh, it would be impossible for Australia to credibly threaten the use of nuclear forces against a nuclear armed state because a nuclear armed state could threaten retaliation against us. So you need the conventional forces as well. And one of the points I make in the book is that there's no point even contemplating the nuclear story unless you've already made the decision to invest more, much more heavily and much more sensibly in, in conventional forces than we are. But the other point is we need a lot of conventional submarines to do the maritime denial uh, task. And personally, although I'm you know, susceptible to the appeal of nuclear-armed um, submarines for conventional submarine operations rather than for uh, nuclear deterrent purposes um, because of their speed and so on. Uh, I do think that, um, that conventionally powered submarines, um, diesel-electric submarines, are more cost-effective for Australia. And that's partly because I put a huge focus on numbers. And nuclear submarines with the best will in the world are much more expensive. I believe we need not six or 12 submarines, but 24 or 32. And there's an argument in the book as to why, why, that, uh, why I think that's the right number. And so I, I, don't, I don't think the French boats are a, a good buy for us for that task. I'd be very... If we were to decide, and I very much hope we don't, but if we decide down the track that we did need to go develop our own nuclear deterrent, I think a French-style or a British-style submarine-based system would make a lot of sense. It's not the only option. There are other options we should look at. And then going back to Cherbourg and seeing if they'd have one for sale might be quite appealing. You, you make a good point on the, the continuing need for conventional forces. One of the other, uh, I think, interesting um, points from the Falklands War is that a nuclear power can also suffer a conventional invasion for its uh, outlying territory. 
I'd like to go to the um, floor now, so um, please wait for a, a microphone to reach you. Could you just please identify uh, who you are and um, keep your question uh, as uh, to the point as possible? I saw the uh, gentleman in the second row first. Hello, my name is Nick McClellan. I'm a journalist working in the Pacific Islands. Yes. You suggest it's cowardly not to have a discussion about nuclear weapons, but isn't it just as cowardly not to have a discussion about nuclear abolition? Um, most of our neighbours, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, New Zealand, um, Fiji and others, have signed the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. They're looking back to the notion of nuclear weapons-free zones. They're looking towards the Keating Commission, which seems to have dropped out of your history. Um, there's a whole range of things that could be done over the next 20 or 30 years to address this question. And you seem to be locked into the notion that the only debate we have to have is about nuclear weapons rather than about nuclear abolition. This seems to me a fundamental weakness of your thesis. I share, I think, anybody's, perhaps stronger than many, because I've thought about it more than many people have, uh, horror at nuclear weapons. But I have, and, and I therefore think that abolition of nuclear weapons would be a wonderful thing to do. But I, but I genuinely don't think we can end the discussion by thinking about abolition as the only option we have to pay attention to. Because the other thing that's really important is not, not just to abolish nuclear weapons, but to make sure they're not used. And we can, we can, one of the concerns I have about the way in which the nuclear strategic issue is discussed is that too much focus goes on abolition, which seems to me to be very unlikely, very unlikely, and not enough on, on thinking about the way in which international relations is managed to, to ensure they're not used. And it, just to be clear, and this is, of course, the, the paradox of deterrence, which is one of the reasons why it's such a complex and in some ways unpalatable idea. The whole point of, a, of an Australian nuclear deterrent would be to contribute to ensuring that they're not used. So, I mean, it's a, there's a lot more to be said about than that, but I, 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 do, I do think it's responsible to address this side of the argument as well as the abolition argument. One thing you talk about in the book is whether there is a possible new great and powerful friend if our old great and powerful friends can't help us anymore um, and you do dismiss that um, I'm interested in your take in um, Brendan Taylor's views so in another book, a Melbourne University Press book if I may say, um, after American Primacy, he looks at the options for the different great and powerful friends we might turn to. Did you find any of that convincing? Uh, thanks Melissa, really, a really great question and, and, and it's uh, I mean Australia's compulsion to find an ally, a great ally, not just an ally, an equal ally, but a great and powerful friend, is, goes, goes very deep. And one of the reasons why this whole subject is so challenging is that um, it, I think it's true to say most Australians simply cannot imagine what it would mean for Australia to try and make its way in the world and make its way in Asia without a great and powerful friend to make Asia safe for us. But I think the reason why I, I am... I believe that we simply cannot plan our future defence on the basis that we'll find another great and powerful friend, is that I see no reason to believe that any great power in Asia will see its strategic interests aligned closely enough with ours for us to be able to rely on them. Now, the, and the, the on, converse of that is, miraculously, or at least surprisingly, fortuitously, we have, for 230-something years, been able, or at least we have chosen to believe, that first Britain and then America did have a sufficient identity of strategic interests and objectives for us to defend on them. It actually turned out to be wrong a couple of times. In particular, it turned out to be wrong in about February 1942, because in the end, completely correctly, Britain thought it was more important to defend Britain than it was to defend Singapore. So I, I, I think it would be a, a, a psychologically seductive but strategically irresponsible idea to think that we can just go out and find another great and powerful friend to replace the old one. That's not to say that an important part of an Australian posture should not be to build coalitions with other countries wherever we can. And uh, I, I, it, it doesn't receive much emphasis on the book because it is a book about defence policy, but the force structure and the strategic posture I propose in the book is very much designed not just to allow Australia to stand by itself, but also to allow it to work effectively as a coalition in coalition with other countries. It's not isolationism. It, 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 it recognises the possibility that Australia could easily stand alone, but it also, I believe, maximises our capacity to interact with other countries if we have to, but not as a subordinate power or great and powerful friend, because I don't think there's going to be one out there for us, sadly. 
Hugh, Andrew Phelan here. Um, I'll jump right into the take a step back uh, comment in the Guardian and the Fin Review in the last couple of days. It sounds um, overly defeatist uh, in the yeah. sense that, you know, we're small, yeah. we don't have the yeah. scale, yeah. and there is, as Ewan said, there's a kind of a whack-a-mole game going on <laughs> that we probably can't do anything to stop. India's more or less encircled now, at least there's a template for encirclement, if you like, in terms of Chinese presence or potential presence. Um, so I, did you say India is more or less encircled? India, yeah, yeah okay. to the north, south, east and west. Um, I think we've got pretty good game in the Pacific. Uh, our Prime Minister can talk league and union. He likes God. Um, you know, Xi Jinping can talk soccer. He, he thinks he is God. So there's a bit of a difference there. But, but seriously, uh, we can compete. Uh, Japan has uh, built more infrastructure projects by value than China has in Southeast Asia under BRI. We've got the historical legacy, and we can partner with the US, Japan, New Zealand, France. And we have certain strengths, English, religion, cultural stuff, and healthcare that China can't necessarily compete with. So even though we've got a smaller scale, it sounds that the sentiment from your pieces is that we should almost abdicate. And I wanted to clarify that. And just, just one more point. I've personally witnessed this in Palau, going from zero to seven charter flights a week for a population of 30,000 people and the impact that it can have. Um, and, and there's going to be some pushback from the Pacific itself, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, look, really good, really good question. And, it, I mean, it's very significant in the, in the South Pacific context, and I had that, I was conscious of that same precise issue as I was writing the piece, in fact, but I think it also applies more broadly. That is, there is a balance to be struck between being realistically understanding the scale of the challenge we face and being defeatist about it. And I do think it's an important balance to strike. Um, and in a sense, part of the purpose of the book is to push back against a sort of a sense of there's nothing we can do about this. In this, you know, it is a book on defence policy, but but in the broader but in the broader diplomatic context, what we're talking about in the South Pacific um, angle. Uh, look, I, I I agree. We have assets, and we should. And one of the points I'm making is we should be using those assets a lot harder. I don't think our games hitherto has been perhaps as good as you do. I think we've, you know, I think, and you know, we Australia, but I think also we more broadly. It's hard to look at, for example, the progress of our relationship with Papua New Guinea since 1975 with much pride, really. Um, and yes, Scott Morrison may have may be able to talk football codes and religion, but frankly, Australia's, the sense of connection between Australia and their closest neighbours is remarkably light. And, you know, I'll really believe they're taking this seriously when they have a labour mobility scheme that really stands up and dances. I mean, that is, that is to me, the absolute test. And, you know, to, to build a military base without doing that, I, I don't think these guys are yet serious. Well, don't get, don't get me started on that. Um, uh, but, but, I, but I do think we have to recognise that, yes, Japan's done it so far, but, you know, that was then. We're looking forward. It's going to be very hard for us to compete with China in building roads. Now, and, and also, when we do so, we're likely to do a whole lot of dumb things. I'm actually very sceptical about how much value just building infrastructure by itself turns out to be. I mean, after all, we are the, we are the people who produced the, the Highlands Highway, um, you know, which is one of the absolute sort of case studies of the amb ambiguous development effects of major infrastructure projects. Uh, I'd, uh, but, I, you know, the bottom line is that um, China is going to offer the South Pacific, as it offers Australia and Japan and all those others, um, more economic opportunities than anybody else. And that is, that, that in, I think, is going to end up being a really rock-bottom thing. Now, of course, there's going to be a lot of ambivalence, and I make this point in the essay. You know, Palau's experience... It, Mutatis mutandi is going to apply across the board, as it does in Australia. We love our economic relationship with China, but are we uneasy about it? You bet, absolutely. Um, and we're, we're, we're right to be. But on balance, I think it's going to be, China is going to be a very important partner. And I guess my core point, I think somewhere in the book I say, that China's rise changes everything. Um, and we still haven't got our head around this. This is not just another day in the office in Australian foreign relations. We are dealing with an Asian power which for the first time since European settlement of this con con continent is more powerful than any other country in the world. And this is just a different kind of environment. So I agree, we don't want to be too defeatist, but we want to be realistic about it. Just one, sorry, just, I, I just, 
um, can't resist um, pushing back on the idea that India is being surrounded. Uh, I mean, yes, yeah, sure, there's a few points there, but India is still 1.3 billion people with an economy which is, for all its ups and downs, is well on track to be the second biggest in the world for most of this century. And although it's got, you know, I, I don't think it's not equal to China yet, but it's easily strong enough to resist China in the Indian Ocean and in and in South Asia. I, you know, those little string of pearls is a pretty weak circle around a very big and powerful country. Oh, hi, it's uh, Grant Wyeth here. Um, yeah. Just back on China and the Pacific, yeah. um, with Scott Morrison's recent trip to the Solomon Islands, there was yeah. a lot of commentary about uh, the Solomon Islands switching recognition and there seemed to be coming from pressure from the State Department as well for yeah. the Solomon Islands to maintain its recognition of Taiwan. Yeah. Do you think China would be less interested in the Pacific if the if the Taiwan issue wasn't there? Uh, look, I, I don't really. I mean, of course, the Taiwan issue has been a you know major drive. Well, let me go back a step. For a while, until well into the 1990s, the Taiwan-China competition over recognition issue was the main driver of Chinese strategic and diplomatic engagement in the South Pacific. It did seem to me that. Um, around the 2000s or thereabouts, it, that kind of dropped away and the Chinese, started, the Chinese interest started to broaden and partly it's because Taiwan just started losing the game, if you know what I mean. Now, um, uh, so I, I do think that, that China has a bigger agenda, a much bigger agenda in the South Pacific these days. And of course, it, you know, it's, it's certainly going to want to pick up the recognition issue where it can. But, um, uh, you know, this is part of a bigger discussion, but I, I do see, I think the evidence is clear that China's objective is to become the primary power in East Asia and the Western Pacific, and the Western Pacific includes the Southwest Pacific. And so I think as, as, as rising powers do in that situation, they're looking around and trying to see opportunities to build their power and influence throughout the region, and that's going to include the Southwest Pacific. And so I think that for them is a bigger agenda than the, than the Taiwan thing specifically. Um, I personally think that trying to make a stand on the Taiwan recognition issue in relation to the Solomons is a dumb thing to do. Um, I do think it's, I mean, the Taiwan issue is a, a whole, I think, very dangerous tragedy in itself, but it doesn't do Taiwan much good to have recognition from the Solomon Islands, and it doesn't seem to me to make much sense, as it doesn't make sense for us, after all, or America, after all. So how hypocritical is this? for us to urge the Solomons to take a diplomatic step that we wouldn't take. Hugh, I'd like to bring it back to um, Australia as we wrap up. Um, you're obviously, you, you're here partly um, because you want to sell books, but you're also, here, you're trying to persuade a certain policy line, right? So the end result of this is you want politicians to buy in. You want politicians to buy into an unpopular message, which is going to be an opportunity cost when it comes to other social welfare programs, etc. Committing to 3% of GDP on defence is a very hard sell. Um, what's it going to take? What's that tectonic event that you have that throwaway reference to at, at the end of the book? What will it take to persuade politicians to uh, follow your course? Uh, well, um, that's really, really great question. And thanks, Ewan. Um, you know, a, a, a very important part of the purpose of the book is to provide an answer to the question, what could we do when somebody decides they want to do something? That, 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 there is, that there is a response Australia could make. And as I say, it's not entirely reassuring because it's a big and difficult and complex response. But there is something we can do to respond effectively uh, to preserving Australia's position in an Asia in which we no longer have a great and powerful friend in our corner. But so far, uh, it's very clear, uh, it's not yet the view of the government or the opposition, or I would say more broadly, the strategic and defence policy community that we need to address that issue, because there remains a great deal of confidence that somehow America is going to stick around. So, for example, someone mentioned Q&A before. On the, uh, when I appeared on a Q&A panel last week, um, you know, it was a perfectly nice discussion, a good discussion, I, I thought, I hoped. But, but what struck me was that both uh, Penny Wong for the opposition and Scott Ryan, President of the Senate for the government, and for that matter, Tom Switzer for uh, CIS, um, were all very content to say, no, look, we can keep on depending on the United States. So what, what's, what's going to 
swap around is there is the point at which Australians start to recognise that it is unrealistic for us to, to expect the United States to continue to play the same role in Asia in future as it has in the past. Now, how might that happen? Well, it hasn't happened with Donald Trump, although you would have thought actually the election of a president as opposed, as, as clearly opposed to, to sustaining America's strategic commitment as I believe Trump to be, would have been something of a jolt, but no, not so far. So I think what's going to, what's going to two possibilities. One is it'll happen in a long, slow decline. People that will, will gradually, as America's power erodes, and I, as I believe it is and will, there'll come a point at which on that long, slow slope, um, somebody in Australia will st stand up and say, no, we can no longer depend on the United States and do what you, you know, really display political leadership and say what's worked for us in the past is not going to work for us in the future. We have to do something different. It's kind of the strategic equivalent of Paul, Paul Keating declaring that we're heading to become a banana republic. And sometimes that does happen. And, you know, Paul Keating might be the kind of political leader who'd do it. The other possibility, though, is that America's power and influence in the region doesn't go like that. It goes like that. And what would cause that to happen would be something that looked like some combination of the Suez Crisis or the British decision to withdraw from east of Suez in 1968. That is, so for example, I think um, a, a crisis over Taiwan in which America decided that it was not prepared to support Taiwan militarily against China, which I think it's quite likely the United States would decide to do, um, followed by a collapsing confidence in the US alliance in Japan, would have, I think, a very strong sort of echoing effect and would start Australian political leaders thinking more broadly. But in the end, it is going to require political leadership and there's no guarantee that it'll happen. It's perfectly possible. In fact, in my gloomy moments, I think it's most likely that what will happen is that, as a, is that America's power and influence in Asia declines, its capacity to support Australia's declines, we won't do anything to, to counteract it and we'll just end up as a small and vulnerable power. The final thing I'd like to put to you, you've been in various walks of life, uh, a journalist, a policymaker, but for the last few years you've been an, ed an educator. Um, isn't there a risk that the defence of Australia redux, if that's not too unkind a way of putting it, that you've outlined uh, could actually encourage a form of strategic parochialism among the people that, that are following you, the younger generation? Now, I know you've already tried to counter this in one of your answers by saying that you're not an isolationist, mm. and I, don't, I wouldn't personally accuse you of, of, of a parochial viewpoint. But nonetheless, if the emphasis is always on denial yeah. and uh, keeping others out, doesn't, couldn't that actually become something, an, an unintended, un, un, unintended consequence that it develops into a, a psychology that appeals to the insularity of the island continent, drawing in on itself, creating a posture as a, a kind of poisonous echidna. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that's very good. I might steal that. Um, but look, no, it's a, really, it's a really good point because one of the challenges for Australia is that, you know, I am sort of a sufficiently old-fashioned um, ch child of the 19... 80s and 90s to think that Australia's future really does lie in Asia and that it would be a very big mistake for Australia to respond to all these, I think, very scary things that are happening by pulling back. And, and you know, going back to the response I made to Melissa's excellent question, um, I, I don't think for a moment that Australia's best strategic option is to lurch to uh, sort of uh, armed neutrality style isolationism. I do think that's an option we might find ourselves compelled to because nobody wants to help us. And I don't think for a moment we should just take for granted that everyone's going to line up alongside us. But I do think, um, so I do think Australia has to work very hard to continue the process we've been working on for decades of building our position in Asia, as strategically as well as economically and culturally and demographically and so on. Um, so I guess you're right. There is a there is a concern there. I guess my 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 answer to that is to just continually remind people that governments have to walk and chew gum and societies have to walk and chew gum at the same time. You do have to hope for the best and build for the best and plan for the worst at the same time. Defence policy is a very special part of national policy. And you, you do, in a sense, want to psychologically and even in some ways institutionally, intellectually isolate it. There's some stuff we do over here to deal with bad outcomes. And we don't want to allow that to dom so dominate our out outlook that we take for granted the outcomes are going to, going to occur. And if you like, psychologically, the art of staying sane while spending your life thinking about defence policy is to put it in that box and say, we do have to do this stuff, 
but it's not all there is, and we need to keep doing the other stuff as well. So it's a, I guess it's a pedagogical challenge to make sure that one gets both sides of the picture. And indeed, Defence spends a lot of time and money talking about engagement. Um, that's something that uh, Latrobe Asia is trying to do. So maybe that's a seed for the next book here is to <laughs> take it out to the region. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, we've gone a little bit over time, but I, I'm sure you agree it was worth it. Hugh, you've been very generous with your time uh, on a very busy schedule. It just remains for me to ask you to thank you, White, for being uh, a great uh, guest and a wonderful speaker. And uh, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.